0: Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we love you, but you loved us first. You called us out of sin and corruption to become your children through faith in your son. We believe in his message and ask you to save more of our friends, more of our neighbors and our family members. Use us as unexpected messengers, delivering forgiveness and hope to them. So give us wisdom and power to affirm through our living and proclaim through our telling the completeness of your gospel. And so minister to us today in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. Patrick, you may be seated. How are you guys doing?
1: Man, I got up this morning to uh, shovel my driveway. Anybody else do that this morning? Yours was already done. Good, good. I, I did that, and um, and I, just, I I was just struck with this epiphany. Man, we are halfway through the winter. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Look, you can be a glass half empty or whichever you want, but I'm thanking God. Two more months. Uh, what a wonderful scripture. Now, we're going to be in chapter 4. We read chapter 3, but chapter 3 is the narrative. Like, that's what happened. That's what set into motion this trial that the apostles are now in before the Sanhedrin. And these are the very people who killed Jesus. These are the very people who sent him to be crucified by the Romans. And so this is an undeniable miracle. We'll learn that they cannot deny it. And it is the catalyst that sets into motion what is going to happen in chapter 4, which is so critical, so vital for us in terms of our identity as the church. So today's message in this Relentless Gospel series is expect opposition and minister in God's power. That's what we're going to talk about today. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, so we see this continuation of the miracle story. And then in 5 through 7, what we see is the rulers, the elders, right? The priestly class, the Sadducees. For some reason, the Pharisees and the scribes are not mentioned there. And so there does seem to be some indication that this is an, a further illegal trial of the disciples because one half of the Supreme Court is missing. That's like if half of our Supreme Court showed up to adjudicate a case. <clears throat> and so there's an indication right away that this is illegal. And this is why in verses 1 through 4, 1 through 7, it says they were annoyed. They were irritated, irritable, annoyed that the apostles were preaching this message, this good news. And of course they were. They don't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection, they don't believe in that part of the Old Testament. They only accept the first five books of the Old Testament, and they don't believe that the resurrection is taught in what's called the Pentateuch. They don't believe that. But the disciples choose to preach boldly in Jesus' name anyhow, anywho. And so God has exalted this Jesus of Nazareth. As both Lord and Messiah, he has exalted him to the right hand of power this mis- message that they preach before the Sanhedrin is the same message they preach before the crowds at the temple in chapter 3, and the same message they preached in chapter 2. So we pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 8, and we hear Peter preach an unexpected message. That's an understatement. It says in verse 8 that uh, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers and of the people and elders, if, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. And this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now he's quoting the Old Testament there. And there is salvation, he says, and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now, that is so critical because in the Old Testament, God says, I alone am your Savior. I am Yahweh. I alone. And so now these Jews, fellow Jews, are saying to the ruling Jewish council, there is no other name. Other than Yeshua, the Nazareth, the Christ, the Mashiach, the anointed one. And so it begins by saying that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had already been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And now he's experiencing what the old folks used to call unction. Just an anointing. Just the Spirit has come on him like a prophet and he boldly proclaims. And the disciples... On the road to Emmaus experienced the same kind of burning that he's experiencing now. Now notice in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they have these little flames that look like tongues of fire that light upon their heads. That symbol has dissipated. It's gone. But what is left is the burning heart the flame in their soul to preach the good news of Jesus and so Peter is on fire he's ready to roll and he says it's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that he wants to be very clear it's Yeshua that word is basically a play on the word Joshua it means Yahweh is our salvation who is the Christ that is his title and to a Jew in the first century, that meant the anointed king, the son of David. And he's from Nazareth. When Jesus was recruiting his disciples, even his, one of his disciples said, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? Talk about a podunk town. The Messiah should be born in an opulent palace. Nope, the Messiah was born in backwater Nazareth and he says whom you crucified. Did they crucify Jesus? Not technically. Uh, Technically the Pharisees and the Sadducees and priests weren't up on a ladder hammering the (laughs) nails into Jesus's or wrapping his arms uh, with rope around the cross. They weren't doing that. But why does he say whom you crucified? Because they are vicariously guilty. And the message of our salvation starts with this. You and I acknowledge that we serve a holy God. And that we have fallen into sin, and that it was because of our sin that he was crucified on the cross. You see, Jesus does not just die in your behalf. If I do something in your behalf, I'm doing something for your interest. Jesus dies on our behalf. Which means he dies representationally in your place. He dies for the sins of humanity. Past, present, future. Every sin that you will ever uh, commit. Jesus Christ hangs on the cross. He takes the punishment. That brings us peace. So he says, let's get personal. Your sin was responsible for putting him on that cross. And every sinner must confess. That Jesus died in their place as their representative and he says whom god has raised from the dead well this is the whole gospel it's right here (laughs) the king of glory who was crucified and risen from the dead and those interrogating them the sadducees and the priestly class they're annoyed because they do not believe this message they do not want to hear this but this is part of the christian faith Romans 8, 11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. To think that whatever else happens in your life, whatever else happens to you, between now and the time you breathe your last and close your eyes for the last time, you will be resurrected in Christ. <laughs> You have the hope of eternity with Jesus. And so this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders who has become the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? It's that massive giant stone at the corner of the temple that determines its stability and its straightness. And all the other stones are laid accordingly. And Jesus is the cornerstone. I want to tell you right now, today y'all, there is no other cornerstone to the Christian faith no matter how important you think other doctrines are, no matter how important you think it is to be a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist. You could be a young earther like Vic. Vic's like, yeah, he's smiling. <laughs> or you could be an old earther like Jace Vonestock. But that's not the cornerstone of the Christian faith, your, your opinion on what Genesis one says. The cornerstone of the Christian faith is not your opinion about the sequence of the rapture. Whether it's pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or ah a-trib, no-trib or pan-trib. It'll all pan out. (laughs) Your view on that, though it may be important, and it is something God wants you to dig into and study so that you can be watchful for Christ's coming, great, good. But that is not the cornerstone of the Christian faith. The cornerstone of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, crucified and resurrected from the dead. That's your guarantee for resurrection. He's the cornerstone. He's the chief stone. Look back in Acts three thirteen, Verse 13, just a chapter back, it says, The God of their ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you denied and handed over to Pilate to be crucified. No one was expecting this. Why is this such a shocker to the Jews? Why is it such a shocker to the Sanhedrin? Because no one in their culture expected this. But Jesus thought they should have. Now, when you go to the Old Testament, man, you can find warrior king passages, especially in Isaiah. If you read Isaiah 40 through 66, you'll find these great warrior king passages, like chapter 42 and chapter 59. Oh, God is coming as a warrior to deliver and save his people it's so encouraging and the Jews affirmed the warrior king passages but they screened out the suffering servant of Yahweh passages like Isaiah 52 and 53 where he is despised and the Messiah is stricken and wounded and bruised and punished and buried and Zechariah 12 which says he was his side was pierced and Zechariah 13 which says the shepherd was struck in judgment and the sheep scattered and Psalm 16 who said, and 22, which says that he was killed and raised. And Psalm 118, that says he was rejected. And Psalm 69, which says he was betrayed. Jesus thinks they should have saw, seen these passages and not screened them out in their synagogue readings. Why have they done this? Because they think that their problem is only a political one. And when you think your problem is only a political one, you look for political answers. You think you need a political answer. Now, for sure, they needed a political answer because they were a client state of their patron, Rome. They were being taxed heavily by Rome. Jews, noncompliant Jews to the Roman system would be crucified indiscriminately on hillsides, okay? So they were oppressed. They did need a political solution. But the reason they had a political problem, Jesus came to say, is because you got a sin problem. You got a political problem because you have a sin problem. Because from the time Moses gave you this Torah, from the time he gave you this command, you have been apostates. You have rejected the word of the Lord. You have not followed after him and walked after him. And so Jesus comes not to just be their warrior king. He comes to be their suffering servant who dies on a cross for their sins, taking the penalty on himself. So that they can be free from the captivity to sin. Because becoming free from the captivity of Rome is not going to do them any good. They'll lose that in a generation. Until they become free from the captivity of sin. And so they gravitated, like all of us do, toward those passages that bring us comfort. And the message that Peter is boldly preaching wasn't expected by anyone. And this unexpected surprising message of a suffering and rising Messiah for our sins is delivered by an unconventional messenger or unconventional messengers. Some unlikely folks. People that the Sanhedrin wouldn't expect to have been given this message. It says in verse 13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, we're going to park here for a second or two. Now, first of all, the word uneducated and untrained does not mean that they had no education at all, that they had no facility with the word of God. That, that is not what it means. Here's what that word is. They were not uneducated and untrained men. The Greek term is idiotes. What English word do you think we get from that word? <laughs> right? Okay. It does not mean idiot. Idiot. In their culture, the word means a person who is not a member of the guild. It means an outsider to the guild, to the trade, to that particular profession. So it's not a guildsman, a person who is not associated with a particular profession, trade, or a particular group. Now Paul uses this same word a few times to in the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, the first place he uses it is in 1st Corinthians 14. And here's what he says there in verse 16. He says, otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit. Now, when he's talking about praising God with the Spirit, that's synonymous with praising God in tongues. Because in the context, he draws a contrast between praising God or speaking with the intellect and speaking in unknown languages or unknown tongues Uh, And he equates that to a mode of prayer. And he says, uh, Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider, there's that word again, idiotes, an outsider to the group, how will a visitor come in and and say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, If therefore the whole church assembles together, And all are speaking in tongues or praying in the spirit, as he calls it. And people who are outsiders, there it is again, idiotes, or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? Now, he is not saying that these people are uneducated. He's not saying that they're derelict students. He's saying they're not in the group, they're visitors. They've come into our midst, and what's he prioritizing in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? He's prioritizing the intelligibility of the message in public. So what is most important in the public assembly is the intelligibility of the gospel message, especially for those who are visiting and those who are outsiders. And so that's what he's talking about. But they're visiting and they're outsiders. It doesn't mean that they're a bunch of ignoramuses. And he uses this word of himself in 2 Corinthians 11, 5, and 6. He says, now I consider myself in no way inferior to those so-called super apostles. These were men trained in Greek rhetoric who became Christians, but then they became prosperity gospel teachers. They began to bring notoriety and fame and, and uh, the rewards of sharing the gospel to themselves. And he says, even if I am untrained, there's that word again, idiotes. In public speaking, I am certainly not untrained in knowledge. What is he saying? I wasn't trained in that academy, but I was trained in an academy. He's not saying he's uneducated. Paul was one of the most educated men in the ancient world. He's saying, I am not a part of that guild. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this passage has been used... But I don't know how many people I've heard over the years use this passage to say that all you and I need is a mystical ability. We don't need any real training, wrong. Because notice this next verse: 13. It says, the Sanhedrin was amazed. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus, so which academy did they go to? The Jesus of Nazareth Academy. They had been taught by the Lord three and a half years. They had been taught directly the Old Testament and the gospel by the resurrected Jesus. And so I want to point this out. God uses ordinary folk. You don't need a seminarian like me, some egghead PhD guy, to witness to people on your job. Now, if you hit a snag and you need a nerdy explanation of a Greek word or something for sure text me or call me I can help you with that but God has called you God has qualified you do you love Jesus are you walking with Jesus do you know Jesus are you in Jesus of Nazareth Academy you are qualified to share the gospel with your friends and your family God is calling you to do it and so the lesson is that God sends ordinary folk trained in Jesus's school thirdly They encounter unyielding opposition. Well, the opposition just won't yield. Verses 16 through 22. And they saw uh, the man who had been healed standing there with them. He is literally hanging on the apostles. We learned that in chapter 3. And they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they, they conferred. So they had a little confab among themselves saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign, notice it's obvious, has been done through them. It's clear to everyone. So no one is denying this. It's it's, uh, self-authenticating. And we cannot deny it. This is a striking admission. (laughs) This is a striking admission. Because what are they admitting? That they cannot deny the miracle that is right before them. It is undeniable. It is irrefutable. And yet here they are denying Jesus was in Jerusalem. Guess how many of these miracles Jesus did in Jerusalem? Hundreds, if not thousands. And yet they deny Jesus. Jesus, they have the evidence of an empty tomb and there is no body. That body is gone. 500 people saw him raised from the dead and were taught by him. And that testimony has been given, being given to them by ordinary men anointed with the Holy Spirit testifying the gospel to them and they will not receive it i don't know this this strikes me as unreal and at the same time the disciples are being persecuted or pressured to shut up preaching in the name of jesus thousands the scripture says are being added to the number of the church i love that at the same time the heat is coming down the light is going out and that's the way god does it and you can arrest the man, but you can't arrest the gospel. You can bury the messenger, but you'll never bury the message. And let's look at the nature of this persecution. It says in verse 17, uh, but so that this does not spread any further among the people. So that's an, impl- that's an admission that this thing now is spreading like a grass fire and it's getting out of their control and they and they receive pressure to cease preaching And it comes when the good news is multiplying and taking hold in the culture. And here's their solution. Here we go. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone about uh, about this in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them. Warned them not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And they had no legitimate power. That's why I say the Pharisees and scribes are probably not there because they believe in the doctrine of resurrection. So you have one half of the supreme court of israel trying the case it's illegal so legally they really do not have any power over the disciples and what are they trying to do they're trying to threaten them instead because this is what you do when you don't have real power over someone you threaten them you bark at them in the hopes that they will be intimidated by you this is what intimidation is when i was a little kid my best friend who lived right next door they lived in a little cabin and their family owned a, a grocery store, a, commu- a convenience store right next to their house. And they got this little dog named Fifi. And I hated that dog. <laughs> now, in my house, all we had was big dogs. We had Labradors and, and German Shepherds. And hunt. my dad had a bunch of hunting dogs. So I just was used to big dogs. And I would go over my friend Raymond's house. And I would knock on his door. And as soon as I would, this little, it was a little Piccanese. He was this big. And he would run to the door, barking his head off, and it terrified me. And I would open the door, and he would chase me, and I would just take off running the other way. And he did that for years, and I hated that dog. And I remember one time I actually went into my friend Raymond's house, and we were sitting there playing with some stuff that I think he actually stole from my house because he was a thief. And uh, we were sitting there playing with my stuff that he had stolen. And I said, hey, man, I got to go. My mom's calling me. So I I went out the door and Fifi chased me out the door and I was like, ah, and I took off running. That dog scared me to death. I wet myself because that dog scared me so bad. And then I grew, a few years went by, Fifi got older, I got taller. One day I was over Raymond's house and the dog comes barking at me and I just looked down at him and I thought to myself, how have I ever been afraid of this tiny microscopic little animal? And I looked at him, and I remember I kicked in his direction. I did, like a soccer ball. I just was after him. And he turned, and he hightailed it out of there, squelching, screaming, and he never chased me again. And I was never afraid of him again, because I learned that the dog's bark was bigger than his bite. And that's the way people are when they try to intimidate us or cancel us from preaching the gospel or the good news or the virtues or value system of the gospel, that's what intimidation is. The only power it has over you is the power you give it. And that's what Satan does. And so they're trying to intimidate the apostles here. And Peter and John answered them whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God. You decide that. For we are unable, we're not able to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We are testifying, we're giving you legal witness. We've seen this, we've heard this. And now the bar here for civil disobedience, folks, is pretty high. And I've heard some things and saw some things in churches in Idaho over the last year, over the last 10 months, that have used this verse to justify not civil disobedience, but I think in some cases sinful disobedience. This verse doesn't justify every way you would want to disobey the powers or the governments or the authority that God has placed over you. It it doesn't do that, the bar is high. They are told, do not preach in the name of Jesus at all. You are to not preach in this name whatsoever. So when is civil disobedience warranted from this passage? It is warranted whenever the government or those people who are in authority over you Whenever they command you to do something that God forbids. Or whenever they forbid you to do what God has commanded. And here it's preaching the gospel. It's being the church. It's going out into the world and preaching this message fearlessly and boldly. Verse 21. After threatening them further, they release them. They found no way to punish them. So this is illegal. <laughs> so after examining them, there is no warrant for keeping them. So they have to release them. Because the people were all giving glory to God uh, over what they had done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man who was over 40 years old, and he was at that gate every single day. They all knew who he was. So this is a political calculation now. Number four, so no amount of pressure or intimidation can stop them because they have unshakable faith. So now, this unshakable faith begins with a prayer meeting. That's where it's found. So the first thing they do in this prayer meeting, when they get back and report this, they all break out into a spontaneous prayer meeting, and they acknowledge God's sovereign reign. That's the first thing they do. That's the first half of the prayer. They come together, gather together, and they acknowledge the sovereign will of the Lord. Here's what they say. And they reported this to the church, and and then they all lifted their voices together to God. God. Let me tell you, there is something so powerful about believers getting together on a Sunday morning or at at our monthly prayer meetings on a Sunday evening. The last one we did was awesome. It was awesome because the family of God, about 20 to 30 of us, gathered in this room and cried out to God for each other, for our community, for the world. And there is something so powerful about acknowledging God's sovereignty in corporate prayer. And this is what they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God who is creator over all. That's the first thing they acknowledge. He is sovereign. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, Sent by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is Psalm chapter 2. If you want to know what's happening in Psalm chapter 2, just write that down. You can study it later. Two things are happening. Okay, the nations are raging and plotting against God's anointed one which they did when Jesus was crucified, and they're going to do again when he returns. And then God is saying to the nations who are raging, kiss the sun, come and pay homage, come bow down before the son, my son king, or he'll get angry. <laughs> okay, now in the end, he, he, he does get angry. It's called the day of the Lord's vengeance. And when he returns... He does two things. He warns the nations, stop raging, come to faith. When it's too late, he judges the nations. And he brings them all into subjection under his reign, under his rule. So that's what's going on in Psalm 2. This is the passage they quote. And so churches that are active in prayer, lifting their voices to God, deferring to his sovereign plan, and they affirm that he predestined the outcome. Look at the rest of it. It says in verse twenty-seven: For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel too, to do whatever your hand and your your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, this word for predestined is the word orizo. It means to foreordain. It means to decide beforehand. So this entire salvation plan was set into motion at creation and was decided on, was planned before the foundations of the world. And then so after they acknowledge the sovereign reign and rule of God and his predestined plan of salvation, what do they do next? They petition God to work through them. They petition God to work through them. It says in verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon the threats, their threats, and grant to your servants. Now, only four people in the Old Testament were given the title, the prestigious, honorable title of the servant of Yahweh. Four people Moses, David, Isaiah, and then in the New Testament, Jesus. So the followers of Jesus are following Jesus and they're saying, we're your servants too. This, is, this does not mean slave. This means servant. This is a household servant in the home serving a great and honorable master. And the great and honorable master is God our father and his son, Jesus Christ. And so they're asking, Lord, grant to your servants, we who follow Jesus to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There's that title again. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And I just want to point out one thing. men: when we are shaken in the presence of God to our core, With awe and wonder over his presence, our faith will become unshakable. When the prayer of the saints shakes the walls, the faith of the saints becomes unmovable, resilient. So what's our application today? Number one, surprise people with forgiveness. Surprise them. Who expects it? (laughs) I'm sure your friends expect a debate i'm sure some of your friends probably expect an argument over your value systems i mean i'm sure your your friends expect silence for you to just leave it alone but surprise them no one expects to be forgiven no one expects to hear that god loves you beyond your ability to imagine it's such an unexpected message, the message of forgiveness, because forgiveness washes us clean. It, it covers a multitude of sins, right? So offer people the surprise, the shocking message that God forgives them, you forgive them, and ask them for forgiveness too. No one expects it. Number two, start seeing yourself as qualified, not as disqualified. Again, God doesn't need a seminarian. God doesn't need a divinity school grad to share the life-changing message of Jesus with your family and in your circle of friendship. I was so encouraged at our outreach seminar. If you had a chance to be there, we had it in room 12, and, and uh, it was good. It was great. It was really good to get together with some people who who are just on fire. People who are really uh, excited about becoming equipped to share their faith and the mission that God has given us as a church in this community. But the best part of the whole thing was our panel discussion. And on our panel discussion, we had Joe and Kim. Mitchell were there. Uh, we had some other people. We had Heather Fonestock who was there. Uh, and a couple of other people. Uh, Stephanie Sandbeck. And, and so it was great. It was a great panel discussion. Kyle, sitting right there, he was there. And you know what I loved about it? I loved, as I listened to everyone's story, that at some point, at some point, these people, their hearts got on fire to share their faith and their message, the message of the good news, and the love and the concern and the care of the gospel with their friends. And I loved that. But at some point, it occurred to me, these folks thought, yeah, I could do that. I think I could do that. I don't think it takes a pastor to share the gospel with my friends, with my family, with my neighborhood. And so I just love that. Begin to see yourself not as disqualified, but qualified. Do you love Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Are you in Jesus of Nazareth school? Because that's your qualification. Number three, understand that opposition to the gospel is normal, it's not abnormal. It's not abnormal. The disciples, the apostles would not have thought, the early church would not have thought at all that to be, for the gospel to be opposed was some abnormal thing. We think that in America because we have such rich, wonderful freedoms. But the fact of the matter is, folks, is that the gospel, listen, you and I were made to do this. We were, made, we were built to be opposed. Because as the, as the heat is coming down on us, the light is going out. And that's how God designed it. It really is. So understand that opposition to the gospel, it's, it's not abnormal. It's normal. And number four, live free of the insecurity that comes with an insufficient view of God's sovereignty. Don't have a low view of who is in control. Listen, you were not built to carry the weight of the world. You weren't. There is only one who can. And so begin to live in the security Free from the anxiety of thinking you have to carry everything. You don't. Now notice that the apostles, right after they deferred to God's sovereignty and his predestined plan, they asked to be used by God. They said, God, use us. Would you stretch out your hand? Would you release your power through the church to minister to people? And that's what God has called us to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we just thank you for this word because it is so life-giving. Thank you for leaving us with these stories. And God, as believers this morning, we want to commit ourselves. Would you just do it right now in your own heart? Say, God, I'm going to surprise someone with God's mercy this week. I'm going to shock someone with the forgiveness of the Lord. Just make that commitment in your heart. And will you this morning begin to see yourself? Ordinary folk, anointed by the Spirit, rooted in God's Word, knowing the gospel, hearts burning on fire to share it. Begin to identify yourself that way. And are you, are you experiencing opposition to your message this morning? Just know that that is normal. That's not abnormal. And God can do amazing things and you don't even know what he's doing. You just press ahead. You press on. And then will you this morning, will you give up the weight? (laughs) Will you just cast your cares on the Lord? Come what may, whatever comes into your world, whatever comes into your life, God has not abdicated the throne. He is still on the throne. Will you acknowledge it this morning? Will you lean into that? and ask God to stretch out his hand and do mighty things in your life through you, the sovereign God working through you as a vessel. God, we ask that you would do that with this church, in this community, that we would be grounded and rooted, taught and trained in Jesus of Nazareth Academy, and that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly sharing the care, the concern, the love and the urgent message of the gospel. Would you help us do that? In Jesus' mighty name, amen.